Well, I want to say first and foremost, you know, that uh, we have felt tremendously welcome here at Haven, and I know we have been delighted to spend the time we have spent with um, Ellen Raby, and she has welcomed us so kindly into her home, and uh, we had a great time last night with her and uh, with the Meyer family, and, uh, you know, Jared had the opportunity to cook uh, us some hamburgers and hot dogs. He did a great job. <laughs> And so we, we enjoyed that time with them. And, uh, and so we, we've just been overwhelmed by, by your love. And, uh, we, we thank you for that. And, uh, we, we appreciate that. And I want to say, you know, I am honored as well that you would have my family and I and you would ask us to return. I know it, uh, it's, we're, we're glad to be back. And we can certainly say that since we left Haven, you know, Haven has scarcely left our conversation. Uh, and conversations, and uh, most certainly not left our prayers. Uh, even for VBS this past week, uh, we've been praying for you and, and all of you that have helped with that. And so um, we we are delighted to be back and, and just to say that. And so uh, this morning, I would like to uh, have this sermon to kind of serve a, a, du- a dual purpose uh, for us. And so the first and the foremost purpose for this message, and above any other, is that you would hear from God. And so, that has been my prayer, and I, I hope and I pray, and I'm praying even as I preach, that you would not leave here without hearing from God. Now, second, second purpose, and I would say a definitely uh, a smaller purpose in, in light of the greater one, uh, is to come to a passage that I humbly uh, would say and believe echoes in many ways my own heart and my own aim and my own passion even uh, for ministry, for Christ, for the gospel. And, and in that way, it serves and hopefully as you hear uh, this word preached this morning that you will hear my heart even though I'm not going to be referencing my heart over and over again. Hopefully you will hear that as I preach as well. And so to this end, Here is the message this morning. Nothing, and if you're taking notes, you're certainly welcome to write this down. Nothing is worth more than knowing Christ. And on the flip side of this, all is loss outside of knowing Christ. So nothing is worth more than knowing Christ, and all is loss outside of Knowing Christ. And so to this, to see this, let's turn in our Bibles then to Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. I'll be reading till verse 11. And as you turn there, I'll just kind of say a little bit here about this book. It is, well, I love the whole Bible. <laughs> but Philippians is just a book that I have continually returned to, uh, you know, in different ways. And I just find so much joy from Philippians and so many ways how it spurs me on in my walk with Christ. And I pray that it does the same for you as well as we read God's word. And so may God bless the reading of his certain and sure word. Amen. Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Amen. That is the word of the Lord. And you have just heard the word of the Lord in me reading God's word today. So during my undergraduate studies, you know, a number of years ago now, of course, uh, to meet the requirements for my business administration degree, I had to take two classes. And uh, some of you may hear these classes and you may leap for joy. And others of you may be like, I'm glad I didn't have to take those or I'm glad I'm not taking those now. Uh, but the two classes were financial accounting and managerial accounting. So now I know, you know, I'm, I'm not the best with numbers, um, but as surprising as it may be to some, I actually enjoyed these classes. So you may be sitting there like, what? How could you do that? <laughs> uh, others of you are probably like, yes, uh, give me more accounting. Um, but, <laughs> but just to say, uh, you know, I did. I actually enjoyed probably the financial side more, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, now, some of you, uh, in fact, I would imagine probably most of you probably are better with numbers than I am. And my wife, Megan, could probably attest to that as well. Um, but all this said, I want to take a moment, and let's take a moment and talk numbers. So let's talk accounting. <laughs> so before you begin looking at your watch and saying, man, I did not come to church to talk about accounting, and you begin making your way to the door, uh, before you do that, let me tell you why. So here, in our passage that we're... Uh, seeing here, um, Paul, he uh, talks about the counting. He uses words uh, of accounting of his day. And so if you look there in your Bibles in verse 7, you see the words there, uh, the words loss and the word gain. So in, in accounting terms, Paul, he is talking here about debits and credits. So he considers what he once thought were credits or gains to his spiritual bank account, now he considers those as actually debits or losses to his spiritual bank account. So what Paul had written in the gain column, he discovered to his great dismay, were actually in the loss column. And so we see the very real danger of relying on our own system of debits and credits in our spiritual lives. So like Paul, you know, it's, it's easy to be subtly, even persistently tempted to make life about your credits and your debits. How good or bad you've been and how, what good things you've done or what bad things you've done and you have this scale and you're weighing them and you say, well, I've, I've done these good things, I've done these bad things, I'm in either in good shape or I'm either in bad shape. And religions around the world, they kind of function this way. 
You know, they have this kind of spiritual accounting. And so they make what you do essential to their view of salvation. So Paul here, he is also adding up what he considered his gains in verses 5 through 6. So in verses 5 through 6, he writes there, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also... If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So when Paul, he wrote Philippians, there were these people who were called Judaizers. And they claimed that no one could be saved unless they had two things. One, they had Jesus, but the problem was it wasn't just Jesus. They wanted to add circumcision to salvation as well as you had to keep the Old Testament law as well. And so Paul most certainly had a problem with that. And Paul, he has a problem with this addition. He's saying it is Christ and it is Christ alone that saves. And yet, the Judaizers, they want to add to the gospel. I mean, he has, he is not shying away here in his wording. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so if they think who they are and, you know, what they can do can save them, he tells them to consider, well, he tells them to consider himself. Paul was even more of an Israelite than they were, at least outwardly. If you were banking on your works as gains you know, to be saved, Paul, he was the cream of the crop. But this type of a spiritual accounting is wrong. Not so long ago, there was a, a company that many considered to be a prodigy in the business world. The energy company... Enron had seemed to really kind of just defy convention. It had achieved earnings up to that point that were just simply unheard of. Yet, in 2001, the now well-known scandal of Enron was exposed. What did Enron, what did they do? Well, they had lied. They had lied big time. They had intentionally hidden billions of dollars of debt by making it appear on their books, their accounting books, that the debt, as though the debt was not there. Their accounting numbers hid the truth. So they made what seemed to be gains, to be gains, but they were actually in reality losses. In the same way, though Paul's pedigree was great, in God's sight, his spiritual counting was wrong. Paul's numbers had lied. They seemed like gains, but in reality, they were losses. And so he was still guilty. He was still unrighteous. He was still separated from God. And so it is that however great your or my external pedigrees may be, they are insufficient as well. Now in the loss column, 
Paul, he scribbles down, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, as is ill, a persecuted church, as the righteousness of the law, blameless, all in the lost column. Now, in the gain column, there is only one word etched there, and that word is Christ. Amen. So we see why he writes these words. And maybe you're here, and you've considered your works as sufficient. You're not that bad, you know, you say to yourself, you know. You've done your fair share of good things, you know, maybe you've helped your neighbor, your co-worker, and, you know, you haven't at least, you know, murdered anybody, you know, at least not yet. But the problem is, is if Christ is not there in the game column, you are not saved, nor have your works been good. It is only Christ who saves. The promises of self-made religion and the the autonomous self-made man are insufficient. So check your math. Take account not of what is in the gain column, but of who is in the gain column. But let me ask another question here. But why, why this change? So what, what changed about Paul? So let's, let's take a look at this. Let's look at Paul and how he has changed here. So Paul, he changed because his heart had changed. He had encountered Christ. Christ had changed him. So Jesus, he appeared to Paul on the Damascus road. And as he went along this you know, dusty road, a light from heaven, which was brighter than the sun, it shined around him, and he, falling to the ground, he heard the voice of Christ in Hebrew say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Paul, he asked, Who are you, Lord? As you can imagine, who is this? I mean, what, what am I, what's going on here? And so Jesus, Jesus answered him and he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. And now Paul, blind, he's led by men into the city and Jesus has already come beforehand and he's told a man by the name of Ananias to come and meet Paul and lay his hands on him. And so in Acts 9, it says, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And so this was no imaginary Jesus that Paul had encountered. But the real and the even now living Jesus is who he met. Amen. I mean, you may not have had Christ appear to you in light, But if you know him, you have indeed encountered, you have indeed met, you have indeed experienced him as well. I mean, and how life-altering and how direction-changing and how world-rocking that is when you encounter Jesus Christ. When I came to Christ, I was anything but pursuing Jesus. I was pursuing a lot of things. I was pursuing Bodybuilding, I was pursuing, yes, bodybuilding, if you can believe it, probably not. I was pursuing women, 
I was pursuing popularity. I was pursuing worldly success. But I certainly was not pursuing Christ. In the midst of all of this, the life I was living at that time, in God's unexpected providence, and I mean that, and really I guess it's it's always unexpected when you're a sinner and you meet Christ, just like Saul. My, my brother, who's not a believer, but he came back from leave from Germany and he's serving in the Air Force and he brought some books with him. They weren't godly books at all. In fact, when I mention them to you, you're going to be, uh, it would be a reason to rejoice in the Lord of his providence, but they were books about vampires and written by Anne Rice, if you know her. So in the last book, Satan came to this main character, the vampire, and he basically showed him heaven, he showed him hell, he showed him the temptation of Christ, he showed him uh, the crucifixion of Christ. And so after reading this book, I began wondering about these things. And so I went and I bought a Bible, and I began reading it. And such a, such a testimony to the Spirit of God at work that I had this time just to read the Word of God. I was only working during the weekends, Friday and Saturday. And so I had the whole week to read. And so in two months, I read the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I could not put it down. Every single sentence and every single thing, including, yes, Numbers and Leviticus, those were amazing to me. It was like reading a novel and I was just, wow, what is all this? This is all these things I'm seeing I've never seen. And it was there that I encountered Christ. I saw God's holiness and I saw my sin. I saw his purity and I saw my impurity. I saw God's righteousness and I saw my unrighteousness. And then I trust Christ. I turn from sin and self and I thrust myself upon my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I encountered him and oh, how wonderful it was. And it still is. And perhaps you're here and you can't say the same. Perhaps you don't have such a testimony. You've never encountered Jesus Christ. You don't know Jesus. All this is Paul saying, never had this encounter with him. You don't see him in this way. Well, Christ's call for you this morning is to encounter him today. Amen. It's to meet the Savior. And what an encounter that is, even as Paul is testifying for us here. And so where in Acts we need, we, we read of Paul's encounter. Here in Philippians we read of Paul's heart change. We read of the internal transformation that Christ brought about in Paul. And so now, Paul, he knows and he treasures Jesus. He saw Christ now, he sees Christ now as of more worth than not only his external pedigrees, but over and above all things. And not only this, but he sees everything outside of Christ himself as lost. Compared to Christ, he says that everything is as rubbish, as lost, as worthless, or as the King James Version translates this, which I, I love, as dumb. 
what he thought he was feasting upon something that was good, like a Thanksgiving kind of dinner. What in reality and what it was is it was dumb. What imagery he uses there. He sees knowing Christ is above all. There is not one thing you have, not one person you know, or anything this world or this universe can offer you or may offer you that is better than Jesus. But you may be thinking, you may be sitting there, well, Paul, that's awfully convenient for you. You count everything as lost, sure, even rubbish, but you have never really encountered much loss yourself. You've never really suffered. So how could you say that? Well, I think if a person said that to Paul, I think he would answer this. I think he would gently answer, my friend, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I've endured many a prison, even now, countless beatings, even to an inch of death. Forty lashes, less one, thirty times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day at sea. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false Brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and even the daily concern of Christ's church. And so Paul had indeed lost much. And yet he tells us, Christ is still better. Amen. So instead of being tempted and swayed by and deceived by sin, Satan, and the pleasure of this world, set your life upon knowing and treasuring Jesus. Amen. You will have no greater portion. You will have no greater life. You will have no greater one than Him. And now by faith in Christ, Paul has encountered Him. He knows and treasures Him. And now he has his righteousness. Paul has his righteousness. So after all that he did, it was as though he had done nothing. All of his credentials and to show for it, nothing. No righteousness. The law could not make him righteous. And so we must reject Christ plus anything. It is Christ and Christ alone who saves. Amen. All the pedigrees and all of his own efforts had had failed him, but Christ didn't, and he won't fail you either. And left to ourselves, our debts are innumerable, but in Christ our debts have been paid, they are forgiven, they have been nailed to the cross. So no longer is guilty the verdict that is upon us by God, but justified and righteous in God's sight. And so rest in his righteousness. Rest in His righteousness. Rest in the humbling truth that all your guilt and all your shame and all your condemnation has been placed upon Him. He has taken your sins, past, present, and future. You are His. And He has taken all those sins upon Himself. What a friend we have in Jesus. Now, Paul, he lives by God's power. Paul says he 
He wants to know him and the power of his resurrection. And so, in other words, he wants to live by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, that's some serious power. (laughs) And this is the power of God in sanctifying his children. And so we need this power too, right? And if you truly know Christ, you want this kind of power in your life. It's called sanctification. (laughs) We want the Spirit of God changing us and conforming us to Jesus Christ. Because we know and treasure Him. Because we have encountered Him. Because we're resting in His righteousness. So you yearn to be like Him. Now I'm afraid, though, for some... As Paul says in 2 Timothy, they have the appearance of godliness, but deny or denying its power. That's a fearful thing. So why would that be the case? Why, Why would you have an appearance of godliness, but have no power? Well, let's listen to this list that leads up to these words in 2 Timothy 3. And you think about it. You consider. You ask that question. Why? Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Heartless. Unappeasable. Slanderous. Without self-control. Brutal. Not loving good. Treacherous. Reckless. Swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying his power. So what would you conclude about these people? Well, these are people who have loved themselves and all variety of other things while they do not love and they do not treasure what is of supreme value. They're flesh-led rather than spirit-led. So which... Let me ask you, which portion do you want? Which portion does Haven want? What portion do you want to see in Christ's church? And if you want this kind of power, if your answer is yes, this resurrection power, then what precedes it also must be true. You've encountered Christ. You know and you treasure Him. You rest in His righteousness. And so then you walk in His power. And so if your answer, though, is yes, 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 I want all that. Amen. May it be Christ my portion. I will know and treasure Him, and I will live by His power. Then take note of this second phrase in verse 10, which may be the more difficult one, share His sufferings. An outflow of living by His power means Paul also would share His sufferings. And if you want to walk by His power, then likewise you will experience His sufferings. And let me say, the Word of God is messy work. When you you want revival in the church of God, I know I do. I want to see fruit. I want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. I want to see God's children growing and discipled and following Him undividedly in all of life because what? They know and treasure their Savior. But when revival comes, it's messy. You look back in church history, and there's a mess there. And let me 
Let me just encourage you with this, though. Embrace the mess. Embrace the mess. To know Him and live by His power and to share His sufferings. And what a work of God we will see. When you cannot put us down, when the comforts of this world are not sufficient, they're not enough to satisfy my heart, it is only Jesus who does that. I mean, countless believers throughout China even now are a testimony to this. While many people are trying to extinguish their flame, it only grew the more. And maybe so with us as well. But as we see this, such produces the last quality here. Paul longs to be with Jesus. So we saw sanctification and now we see glorification. Paul wants to know Christ. He wants to make him known but he also longs for the day where he will be with Christ in glory. Man. I mean, there are many good things I enjoy in this world. You know, I like movies. I like reading. I like traveling. I like friends, family, and fun. And yes, we, we like Marvel and DC. Maybe DC less, but, you know, we like, we like a good many things, but this is not our home. Right? It's good. It's okay to enjoy things here. And every good and uh, uh, I can't remember the verse, but every good and pleasant gift is from above. So it's okay, but this is not our home, and so we long for and we look forward to our home to come. Echoing the words of the saints throughout the ages: "Come, Lord Jesus, come." Amen. And so as sojourners and strangers, because that's what we are. May we leave here today, and may we go forward and go out by the power of God. Let Him be yours, and there you will have true treasure, true power, and true and everlasting glory. Let's pray.